Open up your Bibles, find Ephesians. We're going to spend some time together in Ephesians chapter 5, reading through verses 15 to 21, continuing our, our series of Walk as Children of Light. <clears throat> While you're turning there, let me just make one hopefully fairly brief personal remark. This morning in our Sunday school class, uh, if you were here, we were, I was soliciting some feedback based on our, our Sunday school quarter that we just finished, and I was... Uh, one of the questions that I asked and I was hoping to get some feedback from was, what do you think that we are strong on in, in, in terms of making disciples, in terms of being disciples, making disciples, or teaching them to obey? What, what do you feel like we as a church body are strong on? And, and I didn't have time at that point. I couldn't take the time at that point. But there's at least one thing that I would like to personally, I think it's appropriate to say this morning before I start preaching. I would like to personally uh, commend the congregation here at Riverview on tell you one of my greatest uh, joys and rewards is uh, that I very often hear words similar to this. They're not always exact like this, but similar to this. I often hear words after sermons that say something along the lines that you stepped on my toes this morning or you, 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 you brought some difficult teaching, you, you made me aware of something I'm, I'm not measuring up in or you were, it, it, it hurt a little bit this morning to hear what, uh, what your message contained, but thanking me for that. And I, I, that, I, I want you to know that's not, a, that's not a small thing. That's an incredibly strong sign of maturity as a believer to be encouraged by having your toes stepped on is the phrases that we use, by, by being encouraged or, or, or thanking someone for pointing something out that may be hard to hear. And so uh, I just want to thank you. That, that that makes my, that makes what I do a lot more fun and a lot, not that I'm here to have fun, but it does, it makes it a lot more enjoyable. It makes it a lot easier to unashamedly, to know when I sit there and study and prepare that I don't have to, I don't have to sit at my desk and understand something of a scripture and then think to myself, yeah, well, that's going to come out pretty harsh, so I'm not sure I should say that. I don't ever think that, and I thank you. Now, I don't know that it would affect too much what I do necessarily, but I do think it would over time if I would have a, an ongoing sense from the congregation that I preach at that they would rather not I say things that, that, that stretch you or rather not, I'd rather you not say, I, I wish you'd be more kinder or, or pull back sometimes and not, not say those things directly so much. That would have an ongoing effect, I'm sure. So I'm, I'm extremely grateful to the Lord that I am privileged to uh, preach every Sunday in a congregation that wants to hear difficult things. So, thank you. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. We're going to jump in and uh, uh, continue our discussion. This is what Paul continues to write. He's been on this theme of walking, and it's going to be right in the very first verse we're going to read. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, 
singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So one big long sentence at the end, at least that's how they wrote it in the ESV. But before I begin to teach from this, let's just pray because we want to have the Lord be the one that instructs us. God, it is your holy word that you've inspired. Though we were sitting here this morning, we want to treat it with the utmost of respect. It is you who has the right to speak to us, for you created us, you redeemed us, you have a plan for us, you know us intimately, you know the hairs in our heads, you know every one of us by name, you know the ins and the outs of our lives, you know where we're at in our physical, tangible lives, you know whether we are, uh, have a long ways to go before we take our last breath in these shells, or whether we have almost no time, whether it's coming up right around the corner. You know all those things about us, and more than anything, you know where our hearts are at in respect to our allegiance to you. And so we want to give you the right to speak to us from your word this morning. I'm so grateful, God, that you have uh, given me an opportunity to spend time preparing, and I pray that those, those things that are prepared would come out according to your will. But God, I freely permit you to, to take my mind and my heart wherever it needs to go this morning, my mouth wherever it needs to go this morning, and to furthermore do what you need to do among us. And if that means none of my words are heard, but that somebody else is instructing the congregation this morning through your Holy Spirit, I am fully okay with that, for we need to hear from you. Thank you. We give you praise. We give you the first rights to us, to our brains, our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears, our bodies, our attitudes, all of those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is continuing what I say that he began all the way back in verse 17 of chapter 4 with a long uh, stretch of just continuing to sort of dig down deep and say, okay, we covered all these things about who we are in Christ. We covered all these things about the blessings we have in Christ. We covered all these things about what Jesus did for us in terms of, of making us one with each other, what the church is supposed to look like, how he united us with God himself, all those things. But it's got to mean something in your life. It's got to means make some difference. It's, it's not just a theoretical exercise. It's not just something that, that you, 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 you sit around in groups or you sit in church and you, you hear those things and you nod your head and you say, yep, that's right, that's, that's exactly what the Bible says. Well, it doesn't matter if that's what the Bible says if it's not what's reality in your life. And he has started this, some, and he's just pointing out over and over, what I'm going to tell you this morning, he's pointing out over and over some of these contrasts between what you, we used to be like, what I used to be like, what all of us used to be like, and what we now are if we're in Christ, and what we're becoming if we're in Christ. It's an ongoing process. So we're going to jump into the very first verse. He says, we should look carefully then. All of these things, the, the word then and the word therefore has showed up, which tells, has showed up multiple times in the last number of sessions that we've had together. And it tells you it's because he's saying, here's all the things we learned, and therefore, or so then, or because of that, here's the difference it makes. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Not as a foolish person, but as someone who's wise. He's interested in saying, if this is all true about what Jesus has done, then make sure that your life, the outcome of your life, that's why he uses this word walk all the time. The, the, the manner of life that you live, the lifestyle that you have, make sure that it is wise and not unwise. 
In fact, he says now very clearly for the, maybe the first time as clearly as this, that you should be very conscious of it. It should be something you think about all the time. What is the, my manner of walk? What does my life look like? And that's something I think we should pay attention to because I think it's really easy for us to uh, sort of float through life. It's easy for me. It's easy to say, yep, I've got these things down. I've got these habits down. I've got these disciplines down. I'm supposed to read my Bible. Even good things. I'm supposed to do all these. But then just sort of like float along life and be like, well, these are the things I do. That's what, that's what, but to, but to be aware all the time, what is my walk look like? What am I doing? How am I responding to people? What am I thinking inside? Carefully. That word careful is the word akribos. You don't need to know that, but it means circumspectly or diligently. I thought of this verse as I was thinking of what Paul is saying here. Proverbs 14.8, the book full of wisdom, says that the wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. Now, that's a little, I mean, you, I'm not sure where that takes your brain. And if you read that in a couple different translations, it, it may come out a little differently. Here's what I think this verse means. I think that the writer of Proverbs is saying that what makes someone wise is to be aware of how they're living, to be aware of who they are, to be aware of what the outcome of their decisions is going to be. It's to not just make a decision because that's what feels good or right at the moment, but to be aware of what that's gonna go, where that's gonna lead, where that's gonna go. That's actually what makes you wise. Notice he doesn't say that to be wise means you make the right choice every time. But to be wise is to be aware of how you're living. Because he follows that up by saying, the folly of a fool is really, now it says the word deceiving, but it really the word is, the folly of fools is deception. It's because they're, they're deceived as to, what, as to what, how they're living their life and what the end result of that's gonna be. So really what makes you wise is to be aware or conscious of the things that I'm doing and the end result of those things. Now, of course, I would follow that up by saying, if you're fully aware that what I'm doing is gonna end badly, but I do it anyway, that's not very wise, is it? That's kind of foolish. But it's implied in this verse that if you would but become aware of the end result, you probably would not do those things if they're gonna turn out bad, right? Very few of us would intentionally say, you know what, I'm gonna go out today and I'm gonna take, I'm gonna snort a whole bunch of cocaine. I know that it's gonna end badly for me. I know it's gonna be this big addiction and this thing that like would just be awful, but you know what? It's kind of what I wanna do, so I, I think I'm gonna do it. Like very few of us would willingly invite something that will be disastrous later on down the road into our life now. Now, notice I just said, not very few of us would, but how many of us do actually, right? How many of us do if we would stop to think about the end result of the decisions we're making and the, and the, and the, the, the stuff we're doing and say, if I know, if I really stop and think about where this is gonna take me, I don't think I want that. But we don't because the folly of fools is deception. We just sort of like, I'm gonna just sort of close that off and say, eh, it'll, it'll, it'll be fine. It'll be okay for me. I can handle it. The wisdom of the prudent is because they're thinking about their way, their life, and how it's gonna turn out. Jesus actually told a story that was very similar to this. It's the story, we call it, or the Bible calls it, the story of the 10 virgins. Now, I'd be curious this morning, I'm gonna take a whole lot of time with this, but I'd be curious this morning if we have a young person, let's say youth age and younger, that could just real briefly 
summarize for us this morning what the story of the 10 virgins is. Anybody know that story well enough to just sort of off the cuff say, I'm gonna limit it to youth, age, and younger right now because I think it's a good discipline for young people to, to be able to, to, to share and to know, what, uh, know the Bible. So somebody, youth, age, and younger, anybody that, that feels free this morning to just, you don't have to get it all right. You don't have to be, very, just uh, a brief overview. What is the story of the 10 virgins, the parable of the 10 virgins that Jesus said? Anybody know? Who wants to be brave and try it? I know we have young people that know the Bible. I might call on you if you're not brave to volunteer, so that'd be even worse, right? Does anybody know? I think it's a good parable to know. I think it's a very important parable to know. So let's tell it in in tandem. So who can start off the story? If Jesus said, I'm going to tell you a story about 10 virgins, what's the first thing he said? Anybody know? Other than that there were 10 virgins, I already covered that part. Do I have to broaden it to all the adults? Anybody? What's, tell us, help us, let's, let's help say the story of ten, the 10 virgins. I don't want to take a lot of time. It's not the point of the message this morning. Kermit. Five were wise and five were foolish. Why were five wise and five foolish? Brent. Okay. So the story of the 10 virgins is there's a wedding happening. There's a bridegroom coming and they had to be prepared. Five were wise, five were foolish. What made them wise or foolish? What did Jesus say made them wise or foolish? Okay, so five had oil in their lamps and had enough for a wait period. They didn't know how long it was going to be, and five didn't. So what happened? What was the result? All right, so the unwise ran out of oil, and they uh, wanted to buy some of the wise, and the wise said, no, no, there won't be enough for, both, for all of us. You go buy some. So when they went to buy someone, what happened? The bridegroom came when they were out buying their oil, and it was too late, they missed it, right? So I say that story, you're gonna, I think if you're paying attention to that story of Jesus, the parable of the 10 virgins, you're gonna see a lot, of, a lot of those pieces in our text this morning. But I say it because Jesus began that story with those words that were some of the first words we heard. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. In this morning, what I just read to you is that we should be careful, we should look carefully, we should inspect with diligence the way we're living our life to make sure it's wise and not unwise. And it's striking to me that Jesus tells a story about five that were wise and five that were unwise. That it's possible to live it both ways. It's possible to live your life both ways. I would tell you it's actually the theme that Paul has already been spending time with ever since 4 verse 17. Because he began 4 verse 17 saying, this I now say and testify that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles who are the unwise in the futility of their minds. But later on he says we should walk, we should be in our new creation, the, uh, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, who are renewed in the spirit of our minds, put on the new self and the likeness, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness. That is the wise, those are the wise. We should pay attention. And what we've been talking about, if you would let your eye go back and, and, and just travel through those verses, what we've been talking about is an ongoing contrast between walking in darkness and walking in light, or walking as the old man and walking as the new man, or walking as a Gentile and walking as a Jew by faith. That's what Paul would say, a Jew by faith. Or walking as unwise and walking as wise. So we're just gonna continue that this morning. 
I don't know, I could have been doing this the whole way through. I wish I kind of would have been. For some reason, it didn't come to my head till now. But just to show us those contrasts. So in this text this morning, we're going to walk through a couple of the contrasts that remain. Now, in some sense, there's a little bit of a summary feel to this for me, because he's going to go on to some very specific uh, ways that we interact with each other in our homes and outside in our work world, uh, just coming up that we're going to get to after this week. But the old man, he says, wastes excuse me, wastes time, and the new man makes the best use of time. That's the contrast. The old man wastes time, and the new man makes the best use of time. Now, it's, of course, entirely appropriate to think about just wasting time as in, like, wasting it and doing nothing or just whatever. But I actually think that the, the sense, I mean, it falls under that, but the real sense of what Paul is getting after is the sense, he says, because the days are evil. It's the sense that, you know what, time is passing. Moments are slipping by, even right now. As I keep preaching, the clock keeps going, right? You're all very aware of that. Time keeps moving. Every moment that, that, we're, that, that I keep on breathing is a moment that slipped by and is now what we call the past. And when it's by us, we can no longer go back and relive that moment. We can no longer go back and undo what was done. We can no longer go back and unsay what was said. We can't undo that choice. We, it's, it's time, and it's this inevitable, and this is not meant to like, like freak us out or to overwhelm us, but there's this inevitable push and slide, and you're being moved down the timeline always, perpetually. You can't stop it. It's impossible. Time is moving on. So we have a choice. We can either waste that time. We can either let them slip by and just be like, well, it's in the past, never to be recouped again. Or we can make the best use of that time. Now, that word, make the best use of, is the word exagorazo, I think is what it is in the Greek. That may not be exact. I think it's that. that. But it means to buy back or to redeem or to ransom. Or personally, my favorite definition that Strong gave is to rescue from loss. Perhaps it would be helpful for us to think of the moments of time that are slipping away as lost, right? Because once it's gone, it's lost. It's, it's done. And to make the best use of your time is to rescue them from loss. Now, if I would ask you, what do you think Jesus would say is rescuing those, that time from loss? What does it mean to rescue the time that's, lo- that, that, that's going to be lost? What does that look like? I actually think he talked about that because he said we should put our treasures somewhere where moth and rust cannot come in and, rust and, and destroy or, or, or make them become corroded or make, or make the rust, or where thieves can't break and steal, but we should put our treasure somewhere that's kept safe. Now, we all know that his, what he meant by that, right? In fact, one of, the, one of the blessings of being in Christ is that we have an inheritance that's being kept for us, and Peter calls it an inheritance that's unspoiled, unfading, and imperishable. It's not ever, so that's where the inheritance is. And guess what? That's in a place and in a time, this is weird to say this way, that there is no more time. So that, that, uh, that movable scale is not there anymore. It's hard for us to conceive that. It's hard for us to fathom or to think about that where time doesn't go on. But Jesus said that it's possible for you to do things while you're here in this span of time that actually is a benefit when there is no more time. And that, I would submit to you, is what Paul means when he says, you should rescue from loss the time that you have. Because the time's going to go by. You can't stop that. But the, and, and when it goes by, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing more you can do about that. It'll do you no more good. But what you can do is things that go beyond to where there is no more time that you can enjoy forever. 
for eternity with Jesus. When Paul says we should be very diligent and think very carefully and assess very consciously how we live our lives and what kind of walk we're doing so that we're wise and not unwise, he's going to say it's got to mean that we're aware of the passage of time and how to use that time to be of a benefit to us when time is no more. Now, there's all kinds of places that, that, that all kinds of things that may mean. I'm just telling you this morning that we should be aware of it and we should be checking with the Lord as to what that looks like for us. Because I would say, according to that, there's probably lots of things, lots of times that we are wasting time. That time is just slipping by. It's unrecoverable and it has done us no good for when Jesus has returned. Now, I will point out to you, or will say this yet, I don't know that it necessarily means that all the high and holy churchy things that you think about are what you should be doing. Because sometimes, investing in a personal relationship, uh, this morning in Sunday school we talked about the, the fact that like, our children are some of the most important avenues of discipleship that we have. Both personally as family, as moms and dads, but as a church. So maybe investing in a relationship that... Maybe it's not even like we're studying the Bible together, but just spending time with them and caring about them and getting to know them so that, they, so that, so that you have a relation. Those are things that are putting things in the bank that, that doesn't spoil, right? Those are moments that are redeemed, not moments that are just slipping away, being wasted. Clearly, the time you spend with the Lord is also time. I mean... It just seems so obvious, and yet we just have to be reminded of it so many times. I have to be reminded of it so many times. If we think we're going to enjoy spending eternity in the presence of Jesus, why is it such a chore or task to do it now? That's kind of an ouch, right? Kind of an ouch right there. Like, why is it a struggle to spend time with Jesus now when we fully profess that someday we will love being in heaven and spend all of our time with him. According to these verses, Paul says that the old man is ignorant. He's unaware of what God wants. That goes right back to verse 18, where we started with, they says they were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the Due to their hardness of heart, they become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality. The new man understands the will of the Lord. There's this ongoing, as we put off the old and are renewed and put on the new, there's this ongoing revelation of understanding what God wants. Most of us have found that to be true. The closer you get to the Lord, the more clear it is what he wants you to do. That's just how it works. It's amazing how often we're out there flailing and struggling. I just don't know what God wants me to do. And we're not spending any time with him to find out. We're not, we're not, giving, we're not doing the, the spiritual things in our life. We're spending all kinds of our time like enthused with the TV or with the sports scores or with what's happening outside in our farm or whatever. I, I mean, your, your job or pick, pick, losing ourselves in reading a book or watching something online or piddling away with scrolling stuff. Like, and then we're like, I don't know what God wants me to do. Well, why should we? How could we? 
The old man is ignorant. It's hard to swallow. It's hard to swallow the fact that when we feel afloat and we feel like we have no idea what God wants from us, it's hard to swallow that that's probably because there's old man in us that we have not yet crucified. The old man is controlled by his lusts. I generalize this a bit, and we'll get to Paul's specific phrase here in just a bit, but I want to give you the general category first. The old man is controlled by his lusts. The new man is controlled by the Holy Spirit. He said that again in uh, beginning of verse, uh, oh, chapter, sorry, not the beginning, in chapter four, verses 17, 18, 19, 20, those verses, he talked about the fact that when you're ignorant, when you're walking in darkness, you just do what your flesh wants to do. That's what the old man does. He's controlled by his lusts. This seems fun, I'm gonna do it. This feeds me, this makes me feel good, I'm gonna do it. This keeps me feeling good, I'm gonna keep doing it. The new man is controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now I wanna be very clear about something. This contrast being made is not a contrast between what controls us that's outside of us and having self-control. Because nowhere in the text this morning did it say that, the, that uh, we should no longer be drunk with wine because that's debauchery, but you should be in control of yourself. That's not, what my, that's not what the text says. It's not, we're not talking about self-control. We're not talking about just like pulling up our bootstraps and saying, hey, I'm not gonna let that take over my life. I'm not gonna give in to pornography. I'm not gonna give in to drinking. I'm not gonna give in to any other addictive thing we could talk about. I'm, not, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna get, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm gonna be self-controlled. And there's things in scripture that talk about being self-controlled and that's, that, that's, not, that's not a bad thing. But that's not what Paul is talking about. Because he's saying, I'm not even interested in you being self-controlled. I'm interested in you being spirit-controlled. I'm asking you to be filled with the spirit. That the control of your life is given over, not to yourself. And once again, it seems so obvious, brothers and sisters, and it seems like something we have to say all the time to remind ourselves. If we are the problem, then we can't be the solution. If it's the self that's getting us in trouble, it cannot be about self-control because we're the problem, right? You understand how that works, right? If we're the problem, then there has to be some solution outside of us, which is the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul's specific mention I find very interesting, by the way. There are, I, I think there probably are plenty of things that Paul could have picked that, 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 that represent an addictive kind of thing, a thing that, t that starts here and it's a small thing and you think, oh, that's, that's, that's not such a big deal and it grows 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 till suddenly it's consuming your life and it's to where he's talking about being drunk with wine, being drunk with alcohol. The message this morning, this, this, this point for me isn't necessarily, although I'd be glad to talk to you about my, my take on that because uh, I do have an opinion on, on alcohol. I think that is something we have to be very careful of because I think plenty of us get in trouble Plenty of us too lightly dismiss it and say, oh, it's, it's not a big deal. I can have one here or there. I would urge us to think about why we think we have to have some. I would think it's worth our time to not think about just alcohol, but anything else of this nature, to think about whether it's true that anything that I'm getting from my drinking of any kind of alcoholic beverage, why am I not getting that from, in the, from the Holy Spirit? Because this is the contrast that Paul is setting up. If I needed to relax a bit, why does the Holy Spirit not help me relax? If I need it just to chill for it, why does the Holy Spirit not help me chill? Yeah, there's, there's, 
I'm one of those people. I'm just, I'll just be very upfront with you because I don't know. I, I know there's people that are, have differing opinions here, and that's perfectly fine. I actually don't think the Bible speaks against, like, complete no drinking of any alcohol at all. I'll just be upfront. I don't think it says that directly. But I think if we're going to take this text or the entire text of Ephesians or New Testament any, with any seriousness, I don't know why you'd even want to. I mean, again, it's about, it's about the thing that I've talked about all the time. Like, am I, am I, getting, am I facing this way and getting as close to the line as I think I can get? Or am I facing this way and getting as close to Jesus as I can get? I don't know if there's any good that can come from it at all. So if there's not any good, that can, just because it doesn't specifically prohibit it. What does Paul say? There's some things that are lawful for me, but they don't help me at all. That's my paraphrase. They're not edifying to me at all. But he uses this, this phrase, don't be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And he slides that little phrase. In. That word debauchery is an interesting word. It's not a word we actually use a whole lot today. So like most of us probably don't know what that even is. The word literally means excess because he's pointing about something that may start here, but will always ask for more and more and more. That's the nature of alcohol. That's the nature of, of all addictive things. By the way, I mean, we could, talk about, we could talk about something that's not even a tangible thing. We could talk about lying, and it has this exact same effect. Like, you can begin lying. It's, it's just a little thing. It's not a big deal. It's a little white lie I told. And it becomes more and more and more where you have to cover more, you have to cover more, and, and lying becomes this big thing. And, and we see the reality of that when we deal with kids in the haven. And you probably see the reality when you deal with other people, that when it becomes such a fabric of your life, you don't even know when you're telling the truth anymore. In fact, we've had children that have told us lies when the truth would have served them better. I'm serious. They would have been better off telling us the truth, but because it was part of the fabric of how they thought and what they did, they told a lie. So we could talk about all kinds of things, but I think of this, and it's excessive, and there's another place where this word debauchery, this word shows up in the text of Scripture, and it's when Jesus is telling another of his parables, so I'm going to take your mind to there. It's one we, well, we know so well. It's one of my favorite stories of all, but it actually comes early in the story, and it's in the negative part. It's the story we call the story of the prodigal son. It says that many days, not many days later, when this son, he had received, he told his daddy he wanted his inheritance, he gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. That word reckless is the same word that Paul uses here. He says, don't be drunk with wine, for that is being reckless. That's being excessive. It's meaning the control is outside of you for sure and outside of the Holy Spirit for doubly sure. This, of course, does not put them in good company, right? When you put those words together, it doesn't put them in good company because that's pointing to us when we are the old man still, when we are in darkness still, when we are still in the ignorance of our minds and the hardness of our hearts and be giving into every sensuality and we just, we're, we're excessive. We just do what pleases us. But instead, we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the other thing, reason I think it's a very interesting choice of Paul's specific phrase, even though I think he could have picked some other things, is when you think back, and I don't know if Paul was thinking about this or not, but when you think back to what happened in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit fell. Remember, he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, what happened in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit fell? And all these people began to speak in tongues, and there was an audible noise, and all these men gathered around, these people gathered around, and they heard them speaking in tongues, and some of them looked at them and said what? These men are drunk. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? 
So I think it's probably pretty specific, whether Paul was thinking about it, I think it's pretty specific by the Holy Spirit to, to bring this specific phrase out and say, brothers and sisters, if you're gonna walk as wise and not as unwise, then don't be drunk on wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So I'd like to take the second part of our sermon and focus on that phrase and address the rest of the text. I'm gonna do something a little different with it because I think this is a bit of a concluding remark that we are in general, as you tie all the, the, the things we've talked about, don't do this anymore, but do this now. Don't do this anymore, but do this. All of that finds its, its home in being filled. And I made a correction to the ESV text because it says with the spirit. I think in most translations it actually does, but it's the Greek word N-E-N, which is typically translated in. So I think we should be filled in the spirit. Uh, I don't know if that changes it very much for you, but, but we are, when, when we are in the Holy Spirit, when, when we are resting in Jesus, we are filled with the Spirit, that's true, but we are filled in, or perhaps you could even say by, that, we, that all the longings we have are fulfilled by the Spirit. That when those things begin to take place, then we get to see some signs. And we could look at the last couple of phrases here, and we could just keep saying these are more of the contrast. And that's perfectly fine, I think, to address it that way and just say, this is what the old man used to do, and this is what the new man now does, and the last ones are all about what the new man does. I would like to propose to you today that it may be helpful for us just to walk through that and say, these are actually things we can look at in our lives and say, these are signs that the new man has taken over and the old man is no longer there. So if you're willing to have a little practical test about, hey, we've been talking about all this stuff. We should no longer do this. We should do this. We should not be like this. Well, let's just take a look. Is the evidence, is the fruit in my life that shows that the old man has gone and the new man has come? So let's just walk through that. Am I filled in the spirit? The first one is, I think Paul is talking to about our, I put the word conversations in quotes because he says addressing each other, but the first thing he mentions, and I love this because I love to sing. You all know I'm not very good at it, but I love to sing, so I, I don't know why Paul went with these, but there's something about it, and I'm going to get to a few uh, thoughts about it, I, I suppose, but he says, I, I, the first sign I can give to you that you are walking as children of light, that you are in the light and not in darkness, you are the new man, not the old man, is the way your conversation you, uh, goes with other people, the way you address those around you. How does that, what does that look like? Now he says specifically that we address each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which I, I know there's people that make, they, they, they go through and they get really finite, and, and, that, and there's, I'm, not, I'm not being critical about that. They go, they go through and they're really finite about what a psalm is and a hymn is and a spiritual song and sort of defining what that, I'm not interested in that at all. I think Paul is simply, I mean, he's actually just using every word I think he can think of to talk about the fact that when we have conversation with each other, when we address each other, it is to be about holy spiritual kinds of things. That our conversation is to be edifying and is, and is to be glorifying to God and that our topics should be about the things that make us Christian and about the light and not about darkness. That as we address each other, it would be as if you could write a song about the things that you're saying. How would that be, by the way? Think of the conversation you're going to have this afternoon or this week with people and to say, what would it be like? Now, I can do this today. Paul can do this back then. But what would it be like if that conversation were printed out and thrown up on our wall on Sunday morning and we would put music to it and sing from it? Would it be something that would be a praise and an offering to God or would it be something that's full of a whole bunch of garbage? Would it be something that's encouraging and edifying or would it just be something that's a time waster? since we talked about those things this morning. I recently spoke with somebody that um, 
uh, mentioned that they, he, they were at a wedding, and he said he was astounded as he sat around with a, with a group of men. He was astounded that, like, as he was just sort of like an observer there. He, and, and, and they were talking to each other, and he said, it was, it was really sad because they, they said just a few things about the weather, and that's about, a, like, the conversation would start, and they would just kind of, like, stop, and they would just sit there. He said, these are men that are supposed to be brothers in the church. And their conversation could go no farther than what the weather was like this past week and what it may be like this next week. Now, my, I, I say that not to like poke out there and be like, look, look at that. I say that to be reflective because what are our conversations like? Do they go beyond what's up here? Do they, does the name of Jesus pass out of our lips as we talk to each other? Are the, are the, the pieces of conversation, are they edifying? Do they, do they help us grow? Are they about good things? Are they about bad things? It's a sign of whether we're walking as children of light when the way that we address each other are things that, and again, maybe I'm taking liberty with this a little bit, but are things that could be sung as a worship song. And I know, I, I, I'm, I'm a practical guy, so I know that like, not everything that's gonna come out of your mouth is this flowery like, hey, let's sing this song to Jesus thing. That's not what I'm saying, and I think you know that. I also think that it's far too easy for us to dismiss and be like, well, we can't be like that, and then not even try. You know, I've found, and I'm not always very good at this, just yes, yesterday, I think it was, or the day before, I forget. What, I was a part of a conversation, and I walked away, and I, and, I, and I thought to myself, Merlin, I think you had a good opportunity to slide the gospel into this conversation. You didn't and I was frustrated with myself. But I, after having made some effort, it's actually not that hard to bring things of scripture or to be things of the Lord into a conversation with people. It's not that hard. You know why it doesn't happen? It's because it's not what we're thinking about. It's not, what's, it's not, what, it's not, it's not that it's at the top of our mind. That's why it doesn't happen. You know why I know that? It's because you have no problem talking about the things that are, up, are at the top of your mind. Those come out all the time, right? You have no problem with that. Every conversation you have. Again, the point for me is not that it has to be, you're always talking about Jesus or that everything has to be. But can it become part of how we address each other is a reflection on what the Lord has done and is doing and, and how whatever we're talking about reflects on our following Jesus. I'm one of those people that thinks like all of our life applies to Jesus, right? Like Jesus affects every part of our life. He ought to. So then he should be able to be part of every conversation about everything that comes out in some way. Now, I say this in tandem with the next one because again, many people probably not even like that I'm separating them. But I'm gonna say the next phrase, I, again, I called it conversations because I put it in quotes. It's still talking about singing. He's using some of the same words, but this time he says, I'm singing and making melody, which is the verb of the psalm, by the way. Salo is what that word is. It means to rub, literally, but it refers to playing an instrument. To singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And I want us to see that these things stand separate, I think, but also go together. So they stand separate in the fact that the, the first was really about how we address each other, but the second is more about what's happening when we're not around other people. What's going on inside of here when we're not around other people? 
You understand that if you can have all kinds of flowery Jesus kinds of talk and find ways to bring Jesus into every conversation and be all great with that when you're over here with people, but when you're by yourself, you're grumbling and you're angry at people and you are superior, have a superior attitude about that, about how much you're better than them and, and you, or you're, 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 you're angry or upset about something or whatever it might be, you're thinking whatever, you're, you're thinking lustful thoughts or whatever, you realize that's called like hypocrisy. That's what that's called. It's being something over here when it's not true over here. But it's also true in reverse, right? That if it's not true inside of our hearts, it's probably not going to happen over here. That's the point I just made. That the reason it's not on our lips is because it's not always that first and foremost in here. So unless it's true over here, it's not going to be true over here with other people. So what happens when you're by yourself? Now, I'm, again, not everyone's as weird as I am. And, and not every, now singing doesn't do as much for everybody. And I'm not asking that all of us you know, start singing when we're by ourselves. But, but what, what is happening inside of you when you're by yourself? Is there a... Is there a what I would, is, is there a joyful tune or melody here? Is, is, do you enjoy, I mean, not that you have to be good at singing, but is, is, that, is that where your thoughts are at? Or are you grumbling? Are you wishing, oh, I wish this was like, are you impatient? Are you like, I'm constantly thinking of the next thing that I, or like, you see the difference I'm painting between you? It's where your heart, where our hearts are at. What's happening when we're by ourselves? Because I'm telling you, that's actually the test. The first one is not going to happen unless it's out of hypocrisy, unless the second one is true. By the way, Jesus also addressed that. He was actually quoting Isaiah from the Old Testament, but he said, this is my paraphrase, he said, it is in vain that you come to church and worship and sing all the worship songs and all the psalms and you worship together if your heart is far from him. It's in vain. So Paul picks up on that theme. He says, one of the signs you're walking as children of light is if you are addressing each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that there's spiritual value. But that has to be followed up by the recognition that that's what should be happening inside of you, in your heart. That's where your heart's at. That there's, that there's joy and worship of the Lord in your heart. That if you were so inclined, you could break out in song in your heart when you're by yourself, when no one else is around and of course, these things just continue to follow because the third one is very clear. He says, oh, I, I should read these verses. I should want to give you evidence of, the, of, of both sides of those from the Psalms. Psalm 95, 2 says, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Let us, let us do that together as the people of God. Just a couple of Psalms before that, in Psalm 86, 12, he, he says, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. You see the interplay between those two? It's the corporate, what's happening, how are our conversations with each other, but also how is our conversation just with ourselves, by ourselves? What kind of stuff is going on here? Now, as I started saying, those things just follow up. Uh, the signs of walking as children of light, we see that there's something about being grateful. And again, I'm gonna tell you, that has to do with what's happening inside of here. You're not gonna find gratefulness in a heart that's, that's, that's full of darkness or walking as the old man. You're not gonna find gratefulness because trust me, there's plenty of things that don't go like you want them to go. We had a couple of children just this morning that were struggling with, a little tired and waking up and things didn't go quite right. And guess what? That made grumps come out. You know what? That happens to us as adults too, doesn't it? We're not gonna find gratefulness in the heart of the old man. It's not gonna be there. Paul wrote that we should be giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now that is a phrase that, uh, I mean, that is a phrase that should just, like we need to have drummed inside of our brains, right? Because look at how all-encompassing it is. Let me just read it for you again. We should be, as a sign that we're walking as children of light, we should be giving thanks always and for everything. I don't know why he says it both ways, but he wants us to really get it, right? Always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul likes this, this phrase or this, this refrain. He addresses it in the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians. Most of his New Testament letters, he has something to do with this because it's a sign of the old man inside of us that no matter what's happening, good, bad, in between, that there's a gratefulness inside of us that's constantly saying, God, I thank you. Now, I, it's, it, I, almost, I almost was tempted to say it's really easy to give God, to be grateful to God when everything's going good. But you know what? That's actually not that easy either. There's plenty of times in my life when I'm actually almost worse at being grateful when everything's going great because I take it for granted. I just think, oh, life is awesome right now. I started a little habit a number of years ago that I, I try to continue in my life. And again, I don't get this all right, but I, just every little thing that happened, just, just I mean, I'm talking, I'm talking inconsequential little things in my life that happened. And I would just say, thank you, Lord. I started by forcing myself to say it out loud because I wanted to make sure I was doing it. So I may still do it sometimes out loud where it, something happens. I find something uh, something works out that I, I'm working on something it didn't work and I'm, I'm trying to work and all of a sudden it works I just, I just say it I say thank you Lord it's a habit that I want to have in my life because I believe that I should it is God's will as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians for me to give thanks in all things to be grateful to cultivate a heart of gratefulness even when things are or especially when things are I shouldn't say even or especially at all when things are going good when there's good things happening, but also when there's not such good things happening. Some of the most instructive examples about this come to us in Scripture by guys who are named Job. And his life has fallen apart, right? I mean, he's just lost all of his children, and he's lost all of his possessions. Everything is like just successive bad news after bad news after bad news after bad news after bad news. And Job, for some, I don't know why reason, says this. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. All those crazy guys we call the disciples or the apostles, right? They, they're spreading the name of Jesus. They get in trouble. They get hauled in front of the, 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 the rulers. They get threatened. They get beat. They get told to stop it. And they walk out. And what do they do? It says, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Are you kidding me? Most of us get a little cranky when our meal isn't quite right at the restaurant. Or when the driver stays in front of me a little too long before he turns off. Or when he's driving too slow to start with. If I keep going, you may notice that a lot of mine have to do with driving. Can I be giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, or can I not? Because that is a sign whether the new man has taken up residency or whether the old man is still hanging on. Am I grateful? And, of course, the last one really is going to get us going. If none of them did so far, Paul says a sure sign that you're walking as the child of light is if you are, I, I put the phrase elevating others, he put, the, he put it this way, that we should submit, which is a lowering of yourself, 
I put, it, I put it in the spin the other way, to elevate them, but to lower yourself, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Undeniably, brothers and sisters, unmistakably, without question, this is a theme that runs through Scripture. Our Lord and Savior himself did it. He submitted himself. He did it to his heavenly Father, but he also humbled himself before us, before people that he created as he was redeeming them, as he was buying them back, as he was rescuing them from loss. He submitted himself. He elevated others. Paul picked up on this. He wrote those words, we should be like Christ. But just before that, in Philippians chapter 2, he wrote these words to us, that we should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility we should count others more significant than yourself. I suspect that we could probably spend a lifetime perfecting this in our own lives. A lifetime. Guess what? That's what you have. You have the rest of your life to do that. To learn what it means to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. To elevate others. To do nothing. To do nothing from selfish ambition or from conceit. But in humility, consider others as more significant than you. For some others, that, becomes, that comes really naturally, right? Some others, we see them sort of naturally as like, uh, they're at least my equal, or maybe a, little, maybe a little higher than I am, so that's not a big deal. But this is not, it doesn't say some others. It doesn't say those that you think are of equal station or higher than you. It says that you should consider all people like that. You should count others as more significant. Doesn't matter who they are. You should count others as more significant than yourselves. I don't think I have to tell you this, right? It's not just, I mean, I could say this is an American thing, but it's, it's a human thing. This has not come naturally. All the contrasts we talked about, they find their root in this kind of stuff right here. In a sense, we could almost go backwards up that chain that I just went down the line, because I think it's almost how it works. As we submit ourselves, as we find, as we cultivate gratefulness inside of us, there's a humility that comes out of that, which, and there's a joy that comes out of it. And there's a conversation toward God that, that takes on a holy tone that says, this is my story, this is my song. I'm praising my Savior all the day long. And then it begins to come out in the conversations we have with each other. Peter said these words in my own this theme here. This first part, we're all well aware of. He says, likewise, you younger, be subject to the elders. We got that down. Did we read the rest of the verse? Because the rest of the verse says that you clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, and gives, but gives grace to the humble. If it is actually true that God opposes those who are proud and gives grace to the humble, which I'm going to tell you is true, but if it is true, then that should impact how we treat each other, shouldn't it? That we should clothe ourselves, all of us, with humility toward each other. To recognize as, a, as an outpouring of the fact that I recognize that God will oppose me if I'm proud and God will give grace to me if I'm humble, then I should do what Paul says. As I'm walking in the light, I will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And let me just make that last phrase. I'm going to go to my final slides so it's no more words up there. I just want to, I want to make sure that we're solidly Christocentric, Christ-focused here. All the things we're just talking about, they're all sewn shut with that last phrase, out of reverence for Christ, out of a fear of Jesus. We don't submit to other people because of their intrinsic value, just as it is, or because 
Like, we think that's what it means to be a good human, to be kind to others, to just elevate their needs. We don't, we're not grateful just because we think it's, it's, it's some kind of tool that we, like, can, can help ourselves deal with all life's complexities and difficulties, so I'm just going to cultivate a heart of gratefulness. We do all of this because of Jesus, and we do all of this for Jesus. It is he who gave everything for us. It is he who redeemed you so that you, if you go back to chapter two, it is he who redeemed you so that so you can do all the works that God created you to do to start with, which is to walk in, as you put in chapter four, walk in true righteousness and holiness. So everything we do is for him. It's because of him. It's because of our reverence for him. Our fear, if you want to put it that way. The reality that someday we will stand before him and answer to him. That's why I submit to others. That's why I'm grateful. That's why the song of my heart is a song of praise to my God that I can trust. And that's why the conversations I have with other people are edifying and lifting them up, encouraging them, talking about things that are worth talking about. Because I will stand before Jesus someday and he will say to me, I gave everything for you. What did you do with that? What did you do with that? If you are aware of the book of Ephesians, you know that what we have coming in the next couple of sections can be, let me just say it this way. I have been eagerly anticipating and I have been dreading. If you thought we've gotten sort of practical so far, which I've hopefully helped just get somewhat practical, it's about to get a lot more real, right? Because he's going to call out some specific relationships that not all of us, but many of us are in. Husbands and wives, children, fathers, parents, bosses, employees. I can assure you that if I'm unwilling to be upfront about whether these signs are true in my life, you can go ask my wife and she'll know all about it, right? She knows whether I'm displaying these things. I can talk up here although I want. I can tell you all the things I, I do to, to honor Jesus, but she knows the reality because she lives with me. And she knows that hey, if it's only gonna come out rosy, it ain't gonna be true. God, we want to just allow your word and your Holy Spirit to work in us this morning. I'm just reminded again this morning, Father, how, how so very precious it is that we can trust you that you love us and you have our best interests in mind because because your spirit and your word, your spirit using your word, it's so able to just, just slice deep down inside of me and illuminate those things which aren't as they should be. And if I didn't trust you, if I didn't know that you love me, I didn't know that you want what's best for me. It would be crushing. It would bury me.
But given the story that you brought to mind this morning, has just touched on briefly, given that picture, God, we just know you're always there at the end of the driveway waiting for us, waiting for me to come back. To recognize that sometimes I know what you want and I ignore it because I don't want to do that, which means the old man is still there. To know that sometimes I'm perfectly willing to waste a whole bunch of time and that shows me the old man is still there. To know that sometimes the way I speak to people or the way I speak about people is I would never want projected on a screen and it certainly wouldn't go to any nice worship music. And that shows that the old man is so, so prevalent still sometimes. And I'm so sorry about that, God. I don't want that. I don't want that. I want to be renewed in the spirit of my mind, be transformed to be like Jesus, my Savior, so that someday I can stand before you, Jesus, and you will be so, so ready to tell the Father that this is one of mine. I don't know how you do it. Week in, week out, I know your word. I know your gospel. And I'm just a fresh reminder this morning, Jesus, of how much you did for me, of your sacrifice. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. I, just, I don't deserve that. And you did it for me, for all of us, for the entire world. And I'm so grateful. And God, as I'm up here closing the prayer, I just, I've, <laughs> I'm just thankful that you can speak to me even while I'm delivering a message. And I'm asking by your spirit that the things you're working in me would also be received by those out here. May you be praised and glorified. Give you all the honor give you all the glory. We give you all the credit. Every good and perfect gift comes from you, Father. There's no shadow of changing in you. I thank you. I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.